I basically helped take the company from zero to a billion in revenue faster than almost any other consumer internet company, and then a billion to two billion faster than almost anyone. The company went public in 2013, and I helped run the company as a public company exec, and stayed there almost just over six years. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, we have my good friend, Adam Bain, as a guest. And Adam needs no introduction, uh, but I will say that he is an incredible colleague now in the venture capital industry, a great board member. We sit on the board of Open Door together, and he really had an, has had an incredible operating career as well, so I'm super excited to have him on the show. Adam, so glad to have you. Welcome to Founder Real Talk. Uh, Glenn, thanks so much for having me, and I'm psyched to be on the pod. So listen, you know, I, I thought we'd start, uh, I want to take you in the Wayback Machine you're a Cleveland guy, and anyone oh, who follows God, you, you're going way back. <laughs> anyone who follows you on Twitter uh, knows that Cleveland is an important part of your life. Um, it's true. Uh, you clearly care a lot about where you grew up. <laughs> like, what's so great about Cleveland? <laughs> there is actually a really funny video um, about the uh, Cleveland promotional video that you should go watch on YouTube. Okay, um, but I'll check I, it out. Uh, look, I just didn't. I didn't just grow up in Cleveland. I grew up a Cleveland sports fan, which basically teaches you a massive amount of humility uh, in life. <laughs> um, if you know anything about Cleveland sports, um, there was a curse that lasted about 52 years in the city of Cleveland uh, from 1964 to 2016, where uh, you just went without a title. So I grew up in Cleveland without ever experiencing any Titleless. You, you were deprived. Not only were it deprived, but actually it was worse than that, which is um, Cleveland sports is like dotted with these gut-wrenching moments of complete despair. And there's so much so that they like have brandings. They're, they're, they all have these labels that start with the word the. So it's like <laughs> the drive, which was this thing, um, this moment during the uh, for the Browns in, in 1986 – Bernie Bernie Kosar here. (laughs) They're playing John Elway, and John Elway drives uh, 98 yards in five minutes and two seconds and actually kicks them out of the AFC game, and they didn't make it to the the Super Bowl. And two years later, the fumble. The fumble is the Browns, again, are right Right. potentially going to beat the Broncos, and uh, Ernest Biner fumbles on the one-yard line of of just a walk-in touchdown, and they, they get bounced out. Or there's the shot. This one's like uh, iconic. This is Michael Jordan um, a couple years later in, in 1989. Oh, yeah. Over um, Brad Elo, right? Over, it was uh, over uh, – oh, gosh, who was it? It was over Craig Elo. You're right. You're right. You're Craig right. It's Elo. over Craig, Craig Elo. Elo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's basically like this shot's iconic. It's like it's, – there's oh, like that, pictures that, if I, you can do. Yeah. He, he's got – he's like the Jordan – Three at the and buzzer, you, and then you see Elo just it, fall to the ground, fall to the ground, utter and despair, utter despair, and then Michael Jordan jumps in the air, and so those two moments are like iconic. And actually, if you've outside of the slam dunk picture where he uh, takes off from the three point line, if you 
think of a iconic Michael Jordan shot, it's probably um, this uh, the shot against the Browns. And then there were two. The final two moments were like people leaving Cleveland. Uh, the one is the move, which is the Browns leaving to uh, oh, yeah. leaving completely town and becoming the Ravens. And then ultimately the decision, which also also was LeBron uh, James leaving yeah. town. So it's like basically you grew up learning to understand defeat. You begin to embrace suffering. You embrace heartbreak. You embrace pain. Um, it makes you ready for anything that life can throw you. And that well, you describes see, why was, running it, Twitter was easy. <laughs> and now, you know, you, you've had a tremendous career given that, that background. <laughs> you, you developed strong, uh, a strong backbone and a desire to succeed. So uh, thank you, exactly. Cleveland. But anyway, anyway, I highly recommend anybody who doesn't yet follow Adam on Now X to do so. Uh, you get some, you, get some Adam good, Adam good, Bain. good, 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 good Cleveland, this, good Cleveland. Lord, so much yeah. so I yeah, so much so I actually started helpstartcleveland.com. So like that um I saw that back in, in fact in, in fact that's my that's my next question for you. Oh so God. you go you go to Miami University, um and and then it seems like you're you know, we didn't know each other then, but you're you are the early part of your career is very much new media focused. Um, that's right. Uh Los Angeles Times to Fox Sports to Fox Interactive Media, where you know you were you were uh, taking on more and more responsibility, you were EVP of product and technology, and then president of the audience network at uh, Fox Interactive. Um, like, w- tell tell us about like why why did you go that route? What was exciting to you about um, about being in in new media, and you know what what you learn from that experience? I mean, this is now dating myself because it's just as the internet went visual, <laughs> and um, I got super excited about. Um, journalism um, and specifically stories and how stories were going to be told in new mediums or new media. It was called back then. And I just, I loved it. I wanted to be close to storytelling and still today. uh, I love stories actually weirdly today. I feel like what I do now on the investing side is, is really strongly connected to stories and storytelling and all the, all the work in journalism that I did way back when, um, you know, investing is kind of like, um, is kind of like, uh, has some roots in journalism. I think you basically sit with a subject that tells you what's happening in the world or how stuff's going to be. Uh, you kind of crawl into their head and see the world through their eyes. And then you sit back and say, okay, what did I just hear? Does that make sense? You maybe go out and talk to a bunch of other people and corroborate it. Um, and you kind of sit there and figure out, does, does the story hang together? And ultimately you, you kind of give a commentary or give your own view on the stories that you've heard. And so I, I thought that this stuff around storytelling was so fascinating back then. And it's where I kind of have done a 180 and back to storytelling. I think now today on investing, Weirdly, I started running product engineering teams first, and I realized I was a pretty awful manager of product engineering teams. (laughs) And midway through, I pivoted into business teams and found that to be easier. So I, I, most of my career in media was running product and engineering teams. And then I pivoted very late to go running business and sales and go to market teams then. All right. Well, in the in the spirit of crawling inside your head or other people's <laughs> heads, I'm going to crawl into your head. Tell it. Tell us about. So, 
you know, from Fox, you make the uh, uh, what you know, looking back, was a huge decision to move over to Twitter. Uh, this is 2010, uh, if I've got that right. And you were at Twitter yep. for six, six full years. Um, first as president of uh, Global Revenue and Partnerships, so very much on the business side. Yep. Uh, and then a COO. Yep. Um, like, I mean, what a what a crazy time to be at Twitter. Um, so first, like, remind remind us because uh, you know from the 2010 to 2016 year, a lot happened at Twitter um, yeah. that you lived through, like insane growth and product challenges, and then like all kinds of um, political you know drama with the content and changes with of leadership. Like, wh- give us the story. What was that like? Boy, it's not, as you describe it, it's like again 180, and we're back. <laughs> we're back yeah. there again. Um, twi- I joined in 2010 when it was less than 100 people, one office location in San Francisco, and zero in revenue. Um, the company had just found product. Was that was that when you guys were on were on like Fourth and Fourth and Folsom? Yeah, Fourth and right. Folsom. I remember. I remember that building. It's still there, by yeah. the way. That building looks. It looks like a prison uh, from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, uh, it had a great pizza place. I remember across the street, ah, uh, zero, okay. zero, zero, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, great I, pizza is important. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I came in post product market fit, but before there was a real business and I basically came in to help open up all the business lines for the company. Um, and, um, I basically helped take the company from zero to a billion in revenue faster than almost any other consumer internet company and then a billion to two billion faster than almost anyone um you know the company went public in 2013 and i helped run the company as a public company exec and stayed there almost uh uh just over six years and um then uh stepped back basically because i got the seven-year intellectual itch i was like totally over social media and advertising and um, was, uh, was thinking about what to do next and actually reconnected with some old friends that used to work with me at Twitter, um, which was, which was fun. But yeah, I, as you said, um, it all, when I came in also, you know, it was a crazy moment. Uh, the company truly was going through hyperscale. I think one of my first weeks on the job, um, uh, the Russian president, uh, showed up uh, at HQ. Um, it was just like a normal Tuesday, (laughs) really weird. Um, and yeah, from a product standpoint, um, you know, just as famous as the Twitter bird was the logo logo of the, of the downtime for the, for the company. So the, the brand was really known for being unstable, the fail whale, you know, I, I went to Twitter partly because I, based on my media experience and media background, um, I really felt like this was the future again of storytelling. And in this case, you had uh, ultimately hundreds of millions of people who were telling their own story using the platform. I just thought that was incredibly powerful and um, it felt good to work on a platform, not only that I was using, but also that I thought was doing so much uh, incredible good in the world. Um, the um, maybe somewhat naively back then, um, and then you know, Twitter had a Twitter had a really important place in the world. Even back then, when it was super small in 2010, 
um, everything. And uh, it felt like things in sports, in music, in live events, in politics, as you, as you said, um, all people from all walks and all categories were using Twitter to um, describe what they were seeing or what was happening in their world. And that to me was almost like this live energy was something so unique. Yeah. Yeah. Truly remarkable. Um, you know, and, and, and you mentioned just the, the hyperbolic growth, uh, that the, the, the company sustained while you were there. Uh, I mean, going zero to 2 billion in revenue is pretty crazy. Uh, I know that the headcount probably grew, uh, you know, in an equally meteoric fashion, what was it like, you know, uh, being a, being an, in, in, you know, this, the senior most leadership group on, in, in the company, um, how did it push you, you know, and, and as you think about it now, um, what did, what did you learn there that, you know, has, has sort of stayed with you? Oh, wow. Um, in terms of what I learned, learned, um, there are, a, a, I'll, I'll give you, two things that popped to mind right off the bat. Um, one is that, you know, I was coming from the media business into, into Twitter and a really traditional media business and um, the management and leadership style of the media business is pretty tops down and prescriptive. Um, it literally is like, I'm going to pedantically tell you where we're going and how we're going to get there. Um, and that's what the definition of a leader was. Um, in the media business. And when I got to Twitter pretty quickly, um, I saw, um, at least in 2010, that technology businesses really thought about things in a, in a much different way, which is that the role of the leader was to spend as much effort on the why and the how, but the actual what comes bottoms up a lot of times, meaning that as much as you can set the context for why something was important, um, to the company and why people should care, that then was an organizing principle and ultimately tailwind to the organization to answer the what, like what what should we do? And so I that that just completely resonated with me because it's like how I like to work back in traditional media. And so um, I thought that was just um, the right way to run a company. Um, and then Twitter had this moment um, actually, I, I think um, uh, Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos, I think, um, had relayed this idea to Twitter and we kind of took it and actually even made it one of our core principles back then, which was uh, we called bias to yes. Um, uh, I've become very close friends with a guy named Peter Goober. Um, Peter's got a storied history um, uh, throughout uh, media and entertainment um, and also now in sports. He uh, is one of the owners of the of the Los Angeles Dodgers and uh, the your Golden State Warriors here, um, my Golden State Warriors too. A, he's got a great line, which um, Peter says: "Determined people have a special kind of dyslexia. They're dyslexic to the word no. Um, yep. They see the word no as on, and so you know that resonated with me at the time." and still resonates with me today. Um, in fact, we had Peter come in and talk a bunch to our team about 
um, some of his thoughts around leadership and management. And he kept using this line about being dyslexic to the word no um, and seeing the word no as on because it really resonated. Like there are a million, when you're running a company, there are a million reasons why something, you know, won't work or why it can't be done. And that's when you really have to turn it on. Um, and so I think from a learning standpoint, having this bias to yes was really important. Um, it also meant that like, if you're working on a project, especially as you got bigger, there were, there were a lot of people that felt like empowered in a big company to say no, to shut ideas down. And if the organization has a bias to yes, then it basically gives again, a real impetus to, to get things done. That's awesome. Um, you know, I have to ask, as you look at X today, um, does it bear any resemblance to you know, the Twitter <laughs> you remember? Um, yes and no. And I think actually like my, my take is one of the real lessons of what's going on at, at um, Twitter today is proof of how strong the network effects of the business and the company actually are. I mean, you can't kill it despite right. whatever you throw at it. It's one of the most important platforms in the world. Um, and despite the massive amount of craziness and theatrics around the company right now, it's not hard to still be optimistic about the core idea, um, which is, um, you know, the, uh, the fact is that there are no less people using it. Um, there may not be a billion people using it yet, and that's a fair critique. But um, dis despite whatever you try to do or others who even own the company decide to do to it, um, people aren't leaving the platform. And it's just it's a it's a it's a story about network effects. And it's one of the neat things about, um, I guess, social platforms in general is once you have really strong network effects, the job to be done in the product is pretty, pretty amazing um, and um, non is like unduplicated. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Um and uh um the yeah, the, the you, you must you must take pride in the enduring quality of the asset. Like it it <laughs> like it's, you said it it is an unsinkable ship at this point. It's it's definitely an unsinkable ship. I think the um unfortunately the business has been um maybe impaired a little bit, but is but is still able to be repaired over time. Um, you know, the, the, some of the advertisers and some of the businesses that we worked so hard to get uh, up and using the platform, um, the truth is probably were, um, Twitter was probably punching above its weight, weight class vis-a-vis -vis its size to the type of investment that marketers were making on the platform. Um, and, um, so it may be the case that they're resizing, um, back down to equal to the size of, of what it is today. Thinking about the path ahead for the company, um, you know, I think, uh, it does have, it still has a massively relevant, uh, voice and role. And again, this core idea around it is a storytelling platform and it's, uh, it's in a massive enabler to, for people to tell stories of what's happening to them or what's happening in the world or their, their view. It just feels like there's nothing like it out there. Um, there are certainly some things that are similar. There's definitely some things that are different, 
um, but nothing that um, has the same sort of relationship, at least in my mind, um, to uh, kind of like what's hot, what's new, what's happening in my world or what's going on in my world. And that, I think, is uh, a pretty strong place to, to be in terms of uh, a position in people's life, like what the product actually does in their life. I like your framework of storytelling because to me, that's that's what Twitter brings. It, it it just brings a lot of storytellers to like, you know, I have immediate access to them, right? And they're not necessarily weaving fictional tales. Like uh, the people I like to follow are like, you know, super nonfiction storytellers that have amazing, you know, access to very interesting data and all kinds of like really interesting topics that, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't find in um, sort of uh, mass media. And totally. it's, just, it's just amazing. Uh, totally. it's, it's it's incredible how much how much you can learn and how fast you can learn it on 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 the platform. Totally. Um, so so look, you 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 did a a, a big uh, shift in your career um, in in joining my my line of work. Um, <laughs> decision to join the dark side and become a VC. Um, and I'm I'm curious, like, what was um, what was behind that decision? Um, you know, how how did it did it did it happen abruptly or were you sort of just making investments and next thing you knew you said hey let's let's start a firm and you know you're doing it with your former colleague and yeah. and and CEO at Twitter Dick so curious like curious how that came together tell us a little bit about O1 advisors and and the story of its creation yeah and actually we just brought on David Fisher who was the chief revenue officer at Facebook so not only doing it with my former uh uh partner at, at Twitter, but also my former competitor. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's been interesting. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. like arguably your biggest yeah. direct head to head competitor. Yeah, yeah. Although he's, he went from zero to 120 billion in yearly revenue. So <laughs> <laughs> we like to say we're now the only VC firm that's gone from zero to 123 billion in yearly revenue, but he's 120 of it. <laughs> um, so uh, in terms of what prompted the decision, um, I mean, I feel like the last year that I was at Twitter, I kind of got bored <laughs> and I was over social media. I was over advertising business models. I feel like in any job, you have a pendulum that swings around and on one side of the pendulum is doing and on the other side of the pendulum is learning. And, you know, you don't want to be at, you don't want to be at the extreme on either end too much learning. You're in completely over your head and you're just drowning too much doing you're bored. And so the optimal spot is to be somewhere in the middle, maybe even with a little bit of skew towards learning versus doing. And for the first uh, five and a half years or so at Twitter, it was in that perfect balance and it just became more doing than learning. And I felt like there were all these things that I didn't understand in whether it be business models or types of companies, et cetera, that I just couldn't get exposure to at Twitter. Um, and so I left on great terms of Jack and the board because I wanted to go chase all these things that I didn't understand. And I literally wrote myself a list of the types of companies that I wanted to go get exposure to, the types of business models I wanted to get exposure to, the types of founders I wanted to get exposure to. And then I started going methodically to try and, you know, cross off those, those uh, things on the list. And I called uh, Dick um, around 2018 
and said, this is amazing. We should do this together and do it almost like in a advisory consultative way to founders. And so the first initial companies we started doing this were companies like uh, Airtable and Trip Actions and uh, Carta and Open Door, uh, as you know, at the time. And it uh, definitely resonated with the founders. It def and we saw that there was this really interesting moment where, in terms of at scale operators, there weren't a ton of us who uh, had left their day jobs and then were working on advising companies. And so we decided to basically create a next generation fund around it and raised institutional capital in 2019. We've raised about a billion dollars of capital in just a couple of years. We're on our third fund right now, uh, which we just started investing out of. It's a $395 million fund three. That's and awesome. And it's mostly B2B SaaS with a little bit of consumer mixed in, uh, in and around series B stage. And um, how do you compare, you know, life as a VC to life as an operator? Uh, similarities, <laughs> differences? Uh, uh, a, a bunch of both, a bunch of similarities, a bunch of uh, differences. I think um, I'll give you similarities first, which is, um, you know, all these people when when I started telling people what I want, what I thought I was going to do. They said, oh, you're going to hate it because you're not going to be able – you're so used to driving the car and you're you're right. like going to feel like you're far away from the steering wheel. I'm like, man, running a you know 5,000-person organization inside of a 10,000-person company, that's kind of how you – you don't actually have control of the wheel um, or at least your hands aren't directly on the wheel. Instead, uh, running a team like that, you are um, – you're influencing uh, the wheel, um, but the team is driving. And so it's sort of the same thing in venture. I feel like, you know, the founder has their hands on the wheel and you can't grab the wheel. Actually, some of the worst stories about terrible VC stories are when the VCs try to grab the wheel. Um, I think instead you are trying to influence or nudge or give perspective and context about what's happening on the road. But ultimately, the the founder themselves are are driving. So I think in that way, actually, weirdly, it's super similar, um, and that is actually enjoyable. Um, part of the cool thing for me is continuing the analogy is like I'm sitting in a bunch of cars then in the passenger seat. So I, which is what I want. I've got now, you know, full purview in all kinds of businesses um, in all kinds of categories. Um, which just from the learning to doing on the learning side, that's like, I'm like a kid in a candy store. So I yep. can't imagine ever getting bored on the difference. I'll use this uh, as you can tell as a sports guy, I'll use a really stupid sports analogy, but um, I don't know. Running a big company was kind of like being on a really big football team. It's big. It's loud. There's a bunch of people yelling, screaming sometimes at you. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're constantly out of breath. Um and then there's a lot of muscle memory, I think, in terms of uh, quick twitch muscle movements. But you're playing on a team with a team. And the plays involve everyone on the team. And I think in venture, it's a little bit different, um, whether it's team golf or, or something like that, where you are out sometimes um, a little bit more solitary, um, again, learning. Um, which is investigating concepts, playing out themes or ideas, 
spending time asking a ton of questions. It often is sort of a, as the beginning or elements of it, it may be somewhat solo. And, um, you know, the, the, the worst case adventure is if it's completely team golf and at the end you just, you know, everybody drives and putts and then the scores sort of add up into a macro score. We try and do something a little bit differently where we do everything together. It's probably not the most uh, efficient, but, um, you know, we are, uh, we, we jointly do investments. We jointly cover investments. So it's not like, you know, this is a Adam company or a David Fisher company or a Dick Costello company. Um, we all cover things together. Um, and as a result, we all collectively then are trying to get up the learning curve on venture and on these companies together as well. So we're trying to take the team approach. Um, so, but it, it is definitely different. Like the, the running, running and managing big teams, less about the, um, like what I miss more is I think the, the people, I don't miss the work, <laughs> but I definitely miss the people. Got it. Um, well, speaking of the work, uh, what do you, what are you looking for? Um, you know, in, in founders, uh, you, you've already made lots of investments and congrats on the success you've had so far. What's been the secret? Like, is there something a good formula for you guys in terms of what you look for and the types of companies, the types of founders you want to work with? Um, man, I, I feel like I should be asking you this question because <laughs> you guys have done such an amazing job at working with incredible founders and we've done a ton of work together as O one and, and GGB as well. Um, and I, I really think how you think about founders have been super instructional to us. I think what we're looking for, what we realized pretty quickly is that everything's still, even at Series B where we're playing, sometimes it's a late A, is still all about the founder. Um, yeah. And in fact, some of our biggest mistakes have been um, about founders on both sides, which is... Um, the first mistake we ever made was we did a bunch of research about the business. We loved the unit economics. We loved, I mean, we had done a, a probably like a, 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 a huge binder full of, of work on diligence on, on a, on one of our first investments that we ever made in fund one. And, um, on the founder, the founders, we were like, oh, this is a good team, but we basically spent more time on unit economics and like down in the weeds than on the founders. And it was one of the first businesses that basically went to zero. Um, and so the lesson there to us was to, we should be more focused on the founder. That company, by the way, is um, one of the founders went and has, uh, which we which we reinvested in is has gone around and and i think is going to make this company a real success based on this mm. second business that they pivoted to which is actually again like if you find the right founder ultimately they can even transcend the the original idea that they were working on they're um, dyslexic they're dyslexic, dyslexic. No. <laughs> that's right <laughs> um and then uh, the flip side is we met a founder we absolutely adored and we had some questions around tam and um we talked ourselves out of the deal and the company ended up doing great and we part part, part of the the anti-portfolio now for <laughs> yeah and part of the anti-portfolio well actually we then came back into the next round and said okay, we good. were we good. were we were dumb um but great lesson for us which is great founders can even transcend concerns around tam so i think um i think everything has been about the founder for us even though 
in series B, there's a lot of metrics and a lot of data room work that you can go do on a company. I think we're looking for, you know, a founder that has really high self-awareness, have a really big vision for the future. Um, and we get confident that they're the only person in the world that can do this, whatever this is that they're, that they're trying to yep. impart on the world. One thing, uh, I, I love, love the answer and, you know, I'm 28 years into venture capital and I'm, I'm still more on the learning than the doing side <laughs> of the equation. And, um, I'll tell you like one thing I, I feel like I have learned is, you know, full agreement with your answer that ultimately at any stage, it's, it's always all about the people and, you know, that founder slash leader is super, super important or, or, or leadership team and founding team. Uh, and one thing I've found with like the absolute superheroes that I've had a chance to work with, um, they, they're all very different people. Uh, they're, they're incredibly determined people, um, that might manifest itself differently. Uh, but like no, seeing that, that determination and, um, kind of willingness to, to just work harder than any other human on the planet to get something done is key. But the other thing that I've found is, um, like you have to, the best people are learning monsters. Like they are constantly, totally. they're like, and, and, and again, people do learn differently. Some people like soak it up and, uh, other people, it takes a little while and they kind of first say no. And then, but it, then, you know, come back a week later with it repackaged as their own thinking. You can just see it though, that the best people are learning machines. Cause nobody's born with, I'm sure you found this at Twitter. Nobody's born with, all the skills you need to go run that football team, right? You know, maybe you played quarterback in high school and now all of a sudden you're trying to coach the offensive lineman and, and even the defense, it's really hard. So you, you better learn fast. Uh, and if, if you don't, you just won't make it because, uh, you yeah, know, one the job keeps the job at a minimum just keeps changing every, every six to 12 months if you're, if you're successful. And so you better just keep learning or, or you're, you're not going to make it. Yeah, one of the one of our founders is has become obsessive on this one question, which is what have we as an organization, what has taken us too long to learn? And so when they go do like a retro, um, instead of a normal retro, it's all around right. what what have we taken too long to learn on this specific issue? And it actually that as a framing is a really interesting one because it actually pulls forward, you know, ultimately um, trouble spots or issues in the organization around learning instead of, again, the actual tactical doing piece. Yeah. And speed to speed to like speed get to the right speed answer. To get so speed key. to learn. That's it. Yeah. All right. Speaking of speed, it's time for the speed round. Um, oh we're going to put you on the hot seat and uh, just say the first, first thing that comes to mind, Adam. Uh, okay. First question for you. What, what book or podcast or, or other resource do you recommend to founders uh, that, are, that are trying to hone their craft? But, but book I'm reading right now is something called um, The Attributes, uh, which are 25 uh, drivers or hidden drivers of optimal performance. Uh, Ooh, it's by a guy good. named Rich Davini. And it's actually optimal performance is something that I'm like, I've gone deep on to try and I've been obsessing over optimal performance. And we actually <clears throat> at O one we we have been working with this this uh former NHL player named Jay Harrison who left the NHL 
after 11 years and got a, a behavioral psychology PhD and helps athletes on the mm, mental side um, of sports. And we're trying to take some of his work and learnings and apply it to our CEOs. So this idea of optimal performance, and I'm early in this book, but there's really, it, it's, it's uh, so far pretty interesting. Is it, is it, Optimal performance as it relates to business or kind of all it's aspects optimal, of life? It's all aspects, but obviously there's a twist here to business um, in the book. So uh, I know I asked you the question, but I'll give you one. Okay. Uh, that sounds, sound, sounds somewhat similar. Uh, there's a book called The Right Call that I recently read by Sally Jenkins, uh, who's a sports writer. Um, and uh, what she does is she she studied, you know, over the course of her uh, really – a storied career, um, athletes, you know, and, and coaches, uh, and oh, wow. she's distilled, she's distilled down like, you know, seven or eight attributes that she thinks are kind of, you find commonly in the, in the highest performing, uh, of the bunch. And, and so she kind of tells, you know, every, she, every chapter is about another one of these attributes, whether it be, um, you know, like practicing your, you know, things that, that you're not good at and confronting Amazing. those things. And, uh, it, it's just a great book, uh, easy to read and, and a fun read if you're a sports fan too. All right. It's um, on my winter break reading list. Now. All right. Okay. Who's your favorite Twitter follow of all time? I'll give you a sports one. Um, actually I'll give you two sports one, uh, at B ball breakdown. B ball um, or B ball is in uh, basketball and it B-ball literally is in it is an account that breaks down NBA plays oh, I and love it. it is freaking fascinating to see somebody who really understands basketball break down uh, what's actually happening on the court. Because as a fan, you just sit there and you're in yeah. awe of what's happening. Yeah. And then this person actually gets to the tape and shows you exactly what's going on uh, in a play. Um, and then the other one is at World uh, Worldwide Wob W O B. It's Rob Perez. He's he's uh, he's an absolutely famous sports account. How about right. you? What are your What are your one or two? Well, I like following you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna. Uh, <laughs> I I was checking in, in 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 advance of this episode. I was checking out your your. I was refamiliarizing myself with some of your recent tweets, and I love the I love the the. Uh, the picture you posted of stadium mustard uh, <laughs> right, right before like the Browns playoff game. And you're like, those who know, no, <laughs> like that. And you just had so many replies like, Oh yeah. Or is this the best mustard exactly. ever? And you were it like, uh huh. Yes. That is, I love that, that is, it is a uh, Cleveland stadium. If it was famous for anything, it was just this mustard, which is out of this <laughs> world. Good. So you can, I think you can buy it on, on Amazon now. Um, and it's, see, uh, I'm not going to find, I'm not going to, and I love, you're not gonna find these I'm not going to find that on mass media. Like <laughs> exactly. the New York times is never going to talk about that. So it's incredible. I love it. All right. Um, okay. Uh, this is going to dig in deep. Uh, okay. Adam Bain, I don't know the year, but you were the graduate. You were the commencement speaker at your <laughs> Miami at, University. At Miami yes. University. And yes. by the way, I watched it. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, I basically sourced the whole speech from Twitter. What would you say? I know, you, which is great. What would, you know, any, any anything you feel like you missed? Any any update? Any that you'd like An to say? An update to, those to the graduating. Okay, so I'm speaking to the graduates. Yes. 
Okay, so I would say to the graduating class of 2024, um, in two years' time, AI is going to be so good that you're never going to need to work again. So invest time now in getting a good hobby because AI can't play tennis. Love it. We're bo- and we're both tennis players, for those who don't know. <laughs> All right, get a good hobby. Um, okay, last question for you. Uh, I noticed also on your Twitter account and, uh, and in the news that there were huge lines the browns the, the cleveland browns today like a, a i think it was during the during the uh, uh playoffs it was a, the end of, during the playoffs a a, jer- a, a qb jersey trade in <laughs> so if you had That's an right. old browns quarterback jersey you got to trade it in and they would give and, you a new one and you got a new one and you had this great tweet of like just the litany of browns <laughs> quarterbacks that might be traded in that day there, there was be, like I think a choice of yeah. There was a choice of fifty that you could choose from. And of course, from. You, you you didn't even have to look. At, I'm sure you didn't have to look back in uh, in Wikipedia. You knew them all by heart. I know. Um, the, so who did who did you trade your jersey? Did you get a oh, Joe Flacco jersey? This or is who did, you got. I think the trade. I think actually, I have to go back and look. I think actually, you would trade in an old jersey, and they would give you a Joe Flacco jersey. Yeah. Okay. Which yeah, sure. um, Flacco, by the way, just won um, yesterday. They announced all the NFL awards. He won comeback player of the year. And then actually the Browns also had the coach of the year, Stefanski and the defensive oh, player wow. of the year, uh, miles Garrett. So they, they won three awards. Unfortunately, they didn't win where it counted, but um, no, but counted. they did take, they, they took down the 49ers in exactly. mid season. And have I told you about this mustard anyway? Um, so who would I, <laughs> who would I, who would I trade in Johnny Manziel? Um, Johnny Manziel. It was great. It was great like, call. and actually, it's like the epitome of Cleveland. It was like massive amount of hope, and then just very quick despair. Well, uh, you've given us a massive amount of hope uh, listening to you on this podcast, and no despair. Uh, lots of great <laughs> learnings. Um, thanks so much, Adam, for joining. It's been a, it's been a blast. Uh, uh, get getting inside your head and uh, learning learning more about your career and. and uh, all the amazing wisdom you've gathered over the years uh, that you're now imparting on founders competing with our founders. Hopefully we'll do more together. And so, uh, uh, but, but thanks again. Really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for having me. And I'm going out to read the Sally Jenkins book right now. Thanks. That was super fun. You've been listening to founder real talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us frt at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer and fintech and enterprise tech that includes AI, cloud, cybersecurity, developer tools, infrastructure, and SaaS. The firm was founded in 2000. Past and present enterprise tech companies include the likes of Airbnb, Slack, Square, Zendesk, HashiCorp, Drata, Vercel, Monte Carlo, BitSight, Orca, Neon, Synac, and many more. The firm has offices in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, New York. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us at GGV Capital on LinkedIn.